Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we bring you excerpts from a special program we recently did at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Concord Coalition's founding. You know, we've been doing special panel discussions all over the country marking that occasion, and we've been looking at some of the major economic and budgetary challenges we'll face as a country over the next 30 years. So the panel discussion you'll hear today consisted, interestingly, of individuals who all at one time or another worked at the Concord Coalition and who have gone on to do very serious work advancing uh, important causes for several Washington, D.C. think tanks, organizations, and government offices. The panel includes Diane Lim, known as Economist Mom on Twitter, and uh, a frequent guest on this program, by the way, and former chief economist for the Concord Coalition. She's been serving recently as policy director on the Democratic staff of the Congressional Select Committee on Economic Disparity and Fairness and Growth. We also had Brian Keene, another frequent guest on this program. He's president of Smart Power, which is a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit renewable energy and energy efficiency organization. Uh, Brian also has experience on Capitol Hill. He was a key staffer in the Paul Songas presidential campaign, and he later became one of the first Concord Coalition field directors. And then there's Maya McGinnis, a longtime president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Maya uh, worked as a fellow at the Brookings Institution and served on the editorial board for The Washington Post. Uh, She also worked on Wall Street. And many years ago, she got her start on fiscal and budgetary matters as an intern for the Concord Coalition. And uh, last but not least is the youngest person on the panel, Ben Ritz. Ben is the director of the Progressive Policy Institute's Center for Funding America's Future. Prior to that, Ben worked on Social Security and retirement uh, issues at the Bipartisan Policy Center, but he started his career as legislative and outreach director for the Concord Coalition. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman, who often joins me as co-host of this program and did on the forum, Got the questions off to a start by turning to Diane Lim. Uh, Diane, I'm going to go to you first. Um, Talk a little bit about uh, uh, demographics, right? We've all heard the phrase, demography is destiny. And I think when it comes to our current context here in the United States, it means that we need a, a growing and vibrant labor force that is willing to work, earn income, pay taxes, and help pay for the programs that are so critical, especially to our elderly population. But when our demographers look into the future, they see a labor force that's only going to grow about a third as fast as it has in the past. And that's a pretty, that's a pretty scary number. It obviously has an impact on how fast we can grow as a nation. 
Um, we know why this is happening, right? Women are marrying later and they're having fewer children, which means we've got a slower growing workforce. Um, at the same time, our, when our elderly population is exploding. So my question to you is, what policies uh, can Congress pursue to get more workers into our economy and get more out of our economy? I mean, immigration is an obvious one, but it's not a panacea. So given what you've been doing on the, on the committee and in the House, I was wondering what your thoughts about what Congress should be doing. Yeah, thanks. So um, demographics and the aging of the U.S. population and the global population has always been like a central uh, theme of the Concord coalitions in terms of saying this is unsustainable, right? It's all driven by demographics. And for decades, Concord's been saying, you know, we're spending so much on, on older people and benefits for older people, and um, we're not paying much attention to what can uh, grow the tax base to support these old age programs. So it shouldn't be surprising that um, in my work for the House Select Committee on Economic Disparity and Fairness in Growth, which is, by the way, a Speaker Pelosi created um, committee. So by the way, I am unemployed at the end of this year. <laughs> <laughs> so um, if you got a uh, pen, I'll put your email yeah, on the back so, of my. <laughs> so I, um, the select committee was tasked to, Speaker Pelosi said, I want to create this special committee. I want you guys to study what are the root causes of inequality and disparity in the economy today, and what can um, Congress what can Congress do to reduce disparity and also promote more inclusive and you know stronger economic growth? Because really, if you're not including everyone in your economic growth, it's not very sustainable, is it? So right. and growth helps the problem. Make, exactly. It helps solve the problem. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So um, the policies. So I've we've studied. I've had a policy team that has worked with me, and we've had lots of hearings. And what we've come up with is that we need to invest more in people that the federal government needs to invest more in people, that the federal government can no longer just say, oh, state and local government, you can take care of that stuff, or oh, private sector, you're donating money to reduce poverty, that's fine. There really needs to be, you know, the money is with the federal government. So even though there are many state, state and local governments and many private sector initiatives that try to reduce economic disparity, it is too big of a problem to leave it to the rest of the economy and not call on the federal government. So we are calling for proposals like um, universal pre-K, mm -hmm. uh, paid family leave, uh, subsidies to the childcare industry, because you know, it turns out only high-income people can afford to put their kids in childcare, which means only high-income women can afford to go out to work. To work outside so mm -hmm. it's a a terrible, it's sort of like so fundamental. It's like, you know, the economy starts with people before you get to worry about, oh, the saving and investment that people do. First, you have to start with people who can actually be born into this world and, and work, mm -hmm. right? So um, I've always been told throughout my career, because I have four children, that I am like single-handedly helping to solve <laughs> mm -hmm. the, uh, the, the fiscal crisis. But you know, like it can't be just up to people like me who have been fortunate enough to be able to afford to have children and to send them to good public schools and good colleges. It has to be more affordable for people to have families in this country. Um, and so um, we are looking at, you know, we're also recommending tax policy changes because most of the spending that we do through the tax code 
goes to the benefit of very, very high income, high wealth individuals. And it's not apparent at all that that is helping to grow the productive capacity of the economy in terms of the labor force, right? So it's just like take a bigger look. When you take a more holistic look at the federal budget and how the federal government dedicates money to old age programs versus young people, you know, versus helping people have families, it just, um, you know, we can do so much better. And Gene Sterling has been talking about this um, old versus young thing for many, many, mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. decades. And so, Gene, I've always listened to you, although you've always told me, you've always thanked me for having so many children. But first, <laughs> anyway. Doing your bit for the worker retirement Yeah, you and, you and Jane okay. Gravel, that's like always your first comment to me. Um, anyway, so, um, yeah, I think that there's, it's time for Congress to take a look at investing more in people mm -hmm. and families. And shouldn't that be a bipartisan issue? Absolutely. Right. So. Mm -hmm. All right. So my next question, I'm going to go again to my left here to, to Ben. And, and I was joking earlier. I feel like, Ben, all I, all I have to say is entitlement reform. Go. And, yeah. and, you could just, and you could just do an entire lecture. But I'll, I'll try and narrow the scope a little bit. Um, it's pretty obvious that, that the, the cornerstone to getting our debt and deficits under control is slowing the rate of growth in our major entitlement programs. Um, federal spending on Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid is expected to grow from less than 30% of all spending to more than 40% three de decades from now. Plus, the, the, the major programs are running out of money. You know, Social Security Trust Fund is expected to go uh, insolvent, expected to be insolvent uh, in the, the next decade, and Medicare is actually a problem that we face inside the budget window today. So I guess my question to you is, uh, what should Congress be doing about this problem? What do, we, what, what do they need to work on? Yeah, so I would say the first place uh, I would start is probably with something like the Trust Act that Senators Romney and Manchin introduced. Um, I, I think in an ideal world we would be, you know, talking more about uh, a specific package and there would be, you know, uh, we would be talking about what we're going to do on the tax side and what we're going to do on the benefit side and uh, how we're going to control the rate of growth of healthcare costs. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about what I think we should do when we get to that stage. Um, but it is so far from uh, where the conversation is right now. I mean, we, had, we just had an election where we had one side that was arguing that we should just put Social Security and Medicare uh, on a timer, and if we don't do something within the next five years or the next year, just let it expire. Um, and then we have the other side that says we shouldn't do anything at all or we should increase benefits uh, and, uh, you know, across the board. And so I think right now the discourse is so far from what solutions look like. It's just if we could even just start having the conversation again uh, in a rational way, that would be the, the first step. Um, as far as what we do substantively once we are having that conversation, uh, I think part of it is going to depend on how soon we get there. I, I think I've had the distinction of working on two different uh, social security, comprehensive social security reform blueprints. One was uh, when I was at the Bipartisan Policy Center uh, working with Bill. Who, hi, Bill. Um, and uh, the other was when I, I moved over to uh, PPI. And so, uh, and one thing that you see when you do the, when you do an entitlement reform plan uh, one year and then another one a few years later is that it actually gets a lot harder. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it has been longer since I did the second plan than the time between the first and the second plan. Uh, and we are now, uh, you know, five years away from, from Medicare Part A, uh, just over a decade away from uh, Social Security. And so I think that the 
the solutions are just going to get harder uh, the longer we wait. Um, but I think we need to be looking at you know things like uh, raising more revenue, whether that's through traditional means like the payroll tax or something more uh, more out of the box like a, a national consumption tax. Um, I think that you know we need to be looking at making benefit adjustments that will both protect the most vulnerable oldest retirees, just the most vulnerable uh, retirees, and while still doing it in a way that uh, doesn't put an overly difficult burden on working Americans, because we, it, the, it, it wouldn't be right to, uh, to delay solving this problem for uh, 30, 40 years, and then just ask the, the next generation to pick up the, the entirety of the tab for it. And I, I realize that I say that somewhat selfishly, as I think the only person on this stage, or I don't know, maybe even uh, in Concord's history, who uh, was born the same year as the Concord Coalition. So <laughs> I know that. Uh, At least you own up to the 30. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, well, uh, so we've talked a little bit about some of the issues that uh, Concord talked about 30 years ago, certainly what Ben was talking about, the, the growth of uh, Social Security and Medicare and whether you can raise enough revenue to keep up with it. And Diane's talking about demographics in the workforce. And those problems are bad enough because they, on current demographic and economic trends, lead to permanently slower growth than we've had in the past and permanently rising debt. That's, that's a big problem. <laughs> that's part of the challenge. I want to turn now to our next panelist to talk about a couple of things that the Concord Coalition didn't talk about 30 years ago, but I suspect we're going to be talking about over the next 30 yeah. years. Brian, when, uh, when we started, uh, and Brian and I were both original with the uh, Concord Coalition, and we both worked on the Songus campaign. Unbelievable. We, we, right? we talked about... Uh, we, we talked about climate issues yeah. because Paul Songus talked about climate issues. But when we started working with the Concord Coalition, we didn't. We th we thought of it as an environmental issue, as a serious threat to the planet, still is. But we didn't think of it as a budget and an economic issue. Correct. That really does seem it, to be changing. It, I mean, I've, I I think increasingly you see reports from the United States government and, and international right. agencies raising the alarm about the economic and budgetary effects of uh, climate change. And I certainly notice when we do field events around the country, yeah. this is certainly something that resonates with a younger audience. Yeah. Uh, I start talking about fiscal sustainability, and they want to know about yeah, environmental, environmental sustainability. sustainability. And I think there's something to be said for both. So I'm glad you're here today, because you started out <laughs> in the fiscal sustainability yep. arena with Concord. Yeah. But you're now in your job with Smart Power. You're, you're working on the environmental yeah. sustainability. Do you see some synergies between the two? Oh, a ton. And, and I mean, I would even let me just, I, to, real quick, I'll say there is a, an, a climate and economic challenge and a climate and economic opportunity. So we should keep that in mind. And, and let me talk about that a little bit. But first, let me just pull it back a little bit, too, which is when we started Concord, um, we knew it was going to be a long slog. We knew this was a very big challenge. Um, and the real challenge was actually getting it to resonate with the American people. How do you actually get individual homeowners, how do you get individual people to actually think and care about the federal budget deficit? Um, and we have been successful in doing that. Concord's been very successful in doing that, actually personalizing this issue. Um, 
That is the same challenge we have with climate change, by the way, on that very same challenge, because these are huge issues and uh, scary issues, quite frankly. And you have people literally throw up their hands and say, what can I do about either the deficit or climate? And our approach at SmartBuyer has been actually the same approach that we had with Concord, which is you have to personalize it and you have to give people solutions that they themselves can actually do. And that becomes a real exciting piece of this thing. So solutions that each individual can take on climate is really important so that we can build up to the giant legislation that has to happen or has happened and kind of the countrywide agreements that have to happen or are trying to happen. But when we all have buy-in, the same we talked about with Concord, when people have buy-in about the federal budget deficit themselves, then we can actually make changes on a federal level. So kind of the recipe is still the same. <laughs> um, and then if you pull it kind of go forward, you realize like, yeah, so there are huge economic implications to climate and they are happening today. Um, every time there's a hurricane that we don't anticipate and we don't anticipate hurricanes, we have to pay for it. There are huge implications when um, you know, everything from uh, there is a, a, just a storm that shuts down, say, transportation or drags people to not go to work. There are economic implications to that that we have to start accounting for. Then if you look at the opportunity side of this thing, we can actually see that the United States focus on climate and sustainability really has the opportunity, gives the opportunity for all of us to actually be the engine that powers the economy. And that economy really can turn things around. And we've always known this, but you talk about, you know, yeah, when we create our own energy here at home, as opposed to buying it from another country, that has a huge, op that's a huge opportunity for the United States and for our, our economy. Uh, when you look at the IRA, the, the uh, infrastructure bill, the jobs being put into place today and actually over the next five years is gonna be unbelievable, not just for the men and women working on these jobs, but actually the solutions to climate change. And what will come from that will be private sector investments that we can't, some of us can't even imagine at this point. When we started Concrete Coalition 20 years ago, 30. 30. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, when I started, when I started, when I started Smart Power 20 ah, years ago, okay. sorry, <laughs> sorry. It's my start smart part 20 years ago. The concept of an electric car was, was just a concept. It was almost a joke. Um, and today, actually today, I'm going to pick up my, my Tesla this afternoon. So, so, <laughs> but, but so today, it's just commonplace. Um, when we started smart power, the concept of hybrid cars hadn't even been played. When we started smart power, we didn't have smartphones. The, the yeah. ability for us to actually change how we live, work, play, and pray is unbelievable. And we can do it sustainably. So, and I would just kind of wrap up by also saying, one of the things that we realized at Concrete Coalition, and we, and we also know at Smart Bar, is that this is done through changing people's perception and changing their behavior. And that really has to happen. And it's, it's a huge process. When you change people's behavior, when you get a 10-year-old to turn off a light, they don't do it just once. They do it for their entire lifetime. And then she raises a family that turns off lights. Mm -hmm. Like that's what happens. And that's what, what Concord Coalition has been thinking about for 30 years, which is how do we get all of us to change our behavior so that Congress and the government actually spends what it makes? Uh, that's, it's a unique concept. But, but how do we actually get people to think that that's the way it's supposed to be and use that behavior so that we then implement that at the ballot box? You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We're listening to excerpts from a recent Washington, D.C. panel discussion at the National Press Club celebrating the 30th birthday of the Concord Coalition. 
We'll hear more after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Let's get back to the excerpts from a recent panel discussion at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Concord Coalition's founding. On the panel were four Concord Coalition alumni who have all gone on to have great careers working on some of the big challenges facing our economy and the federal budget. We continue now with the topic of how fiscal and environmental sustainability are intertwined. And our guest for that segment is Brian Keene, president of Smart Power. One of the big dilemmas that uh, face advocates of fiscal responsibility and, and environmental sustainability is that you have to believe that actions taken today are going to have a good effect in the future because all the incentives in the short term are bad. Yep. You want to waste energy? Great. I mean, as right. you, you want to waste you know, money in the budget? Right. Terrific. The short-term incentives for politicians as well as for the public are good. So you have to, in both areas, you have to have uh, an appreciation for the future and That's a right. dedication and a, and a willingness to do things now Absolutely. that will, uh, that will you know, produce benefits over the future. Well, and really important is not to separate these two. These are not silos. This yeah, is a exactly. real important yeah. thing where Concord Coalition and organizations like Smart Power need to actually come together. And it's like, let's, we need to have this conversation. Um, and people have to start understanding that they are they are so connected, you can't do one. They really should work together because yeah. you can't have really can't have you can't invest in the things that we need to do on the environment unless you have a fiscally sound government. Exactly. And you know, you if you have a fiscally sound government, it doesn't matter if the planet is burning. Exactly. Up. <laughs> exactly. So um, Maya, um, speaking about difficult challenges, mm -hmm. I think, you know, um, in in the early years of Concord and, and up through fairly recently, we certainly knew that there was bipart that there was tension, partisan tensions. We thought things were bad in 1992. But, um, you know, things have, I, I think, grown in increasingly difficult to the point where you, you sort of reach dysfunction. And I thought it was really significant as, you know, you being um, really identified, I think the Wall Street Journal called you a deficit warrior at one time. <laughs> Somebody... There's really an unapologetic un, uh, deficit hawk, but in 2018, you created a new project within the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget called Fix US, which was devoted to the division and, and distrust and dysfunction in, the, uh, in, the, in our politics today. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that and why, how that relates to the fiscal and economic uh, you know, challenges that we've been working on. Yeah, great, thank you. Um, let me first just express my appreciation for the Concord Coalition and for you, Bob, and for the whole great team and what you guys all accomplish. Um, and it was funny to think back about working there, I think it was 1994, 95, um, and despite being unpaid, it was, um, it, was, it was the big pivot in my career where I found what it was like to work on an issue that you're completely passionate about surrounded by people who are all mission-oriented. And it was, it's transformational when you're figuring out what you want to do with your life to find something that you're that excited to do. And all of us, like that's what drives us. We've all been doing this for a long time because we believe it's so important. So, And the Concord Coalition, the work that it has succeeded in, in building grassroots and people who care about this all across the country when it is such a difficult issue to get people to care about is really remarkable. So thank you. Thank you. Um, and then also, just when Brian was thinking, I was talking, I was thinking, it is so hard to work on issues that both climate and debt are, that are 
There is nothing immediate. There is nothing tangible in the moment. You actually aren't convinced it's really bad, right? The past 10 years have not been good for making people recognize why fiscal issues matter as interest <laughs> rates have plummeted and inflation was nowhere to be seen until recently. Um, and there's no action forcing moment. So all of us, sorry, become untaped. All of us spend time trying to create like arbitrary deadlines to force action. And that's really difficult. And that's why I think these, these issues are so hard. In addition to that, you have to do a lot of tough things today in order to get gains in the future. So I think that contributes to why this issue of the debt has been so difficult already and is in such worse shape. Such I, I am really pessimistic. Let me just put that out before I begin. But um, in such worse shape because of the dire polarization that we are in the midst of in this country. And um, that is why we started Fix Us, because we knew, we, we know the solutions. I think all of us who've been working on this know how to fix these things. In fact, this morning I was reading the new book that Paul Ryan has just come out with, which goes through a bunch of chapters on what to do on tax policy and entitlement policy and economic growth. And it's a right of center book. So you add a little bit of left of centerness to it. And you have all the solutions that are right and that we've known for a long time. You've got to deal with entitlements. You've got to have pro-growth tax reform. You have to cap spending so it's not growing too quickly. You need to make the appropriate investments. We know how to do this, but we can't get it done. And when I look back, like Ben was talking about since how things have deteriorated since the last Social Security reform attempts, when I look back to Simpson-Bowles, which was just a fabulous blueprint about how to fix this a little over a decade ago, we came so close to getting it done, we weren't able to get it done. It's 10 years later, the fiscal situation is much worse, and the political situation is a 1,000 times much worse. Mm -hmm. So we decided rather than continue to push the exact same solutions that we knew we weren't going to be able to get done, mm -hmm. but you still have to keep pushing them so the boulder doesn't roll back down the mountain, we also wanted to create an effort to really understand the root causes of why we have gotten to the 3Ds, dysfunction, distrust, and division. I guess the fourth D is debt. Um, <laughs> because you can't address fiscal policy and you can't address climate until you address the fact that we are so divided we are unable to make progress on any of these issues, in particular difficult ones. And just to kind of see the parallels, in order to get a big fiscal deal, a grand bargain, or even, frankly, a tiny baby step in the right direction, you need a Congress that is willing to focus on, like we just said, the long-term gains rather than just the immediate gains. And polarization makes that worse. You need a Congress that's willing to focus on good policy instead of good politics. We know how to fix Social Security. It's just that politically, it's so easy to demagogue it, so, so easy, that we haven't done that. And we've, as a result, jeopardized all these people who depend on it. So we have to figure out the way you care about good policy over good politics. This is a tough moment to see how that's going to work. You have to confront trade-offs. And in a world of tax cuts pay for themselves, MMT, and this is so important, we can't possibly pay for it. Instead of the obvious, this is so important, we've got to pay for it. But in those free lunch um, approaches, there is no need, and in a world where we don't bother to pass budgets at all, <laughs> right? It's not even, like, no one even notices that we don't pass, pass budgets anymore, but there's no place that makes us confront trade-offs. That's the same as this Congress. They don't want to, these, this, the, the past years, they don't want to deal with, um, dealing with the trade-offs, confronting those at all. And finally, we all know it requires compromise. It's going to take entitlement reform, spending cuts, tax increases. You're going to have to compromise on every one of these policies. And yet, with the extremes that exist in this polarized world right now, 
compromise has become a bad word. I never thought I would see that happen. And so we just felt like we had to put some share of our effort into looking at how we got to this moment and hope in studying that that may help us figure out what strategies will help us on the fiscal front. When I was looking at, uh, at the material on the website, I, was, I, I, I don't know why this came to mind, but I was thinking about the DEF CON uh, <laughs> uh, rating that uh, we have mm -hmm. the Defense Department. If we, we don't have a DEF CON for political dysfunction, but, but if we did, whereabouts do you think we would be? This is the scale from you know, five being acceptable, one being, oh my god, we're about to have a nuclear war. Yeah, I mean, that's really a scary question, isn't it? Because obviously the next steps are going to be, to what extent could there or will there be violence? Um, and I've just come back from a three-day retreat on, on democracy, and a lot of the talk was about what will cause violence to happen? When will those things break out? When do you lose the norms and, in fact, the laws for the rule of law? How do you um, break up the institutions that have regulated and helped all of us sort of stay within an agreement about what a nation state means, this nation state means? Um, and we're not there, but we're in a place where it's becoming harder and harder to see how we're going to change this. Because the fact is, in a country that is supposed to pride ourselves on diverse points of view and diverse opinions and help figure out how to work and be stronger for that, when we are now at a point where it's not just in the extremes, it's in all of our communities where people think that someone who disagrees with them is bad and wrong and evil, it is really hard to start building back the empathy um, and the cooperation that you need to come back from it. So we're, we're at like the middle level three. But you could see us going deeper because we have so many things working against us, including external threats from countries that don't want to work with us, new technological threats, which mean that um, things that you can't even see can be uh, assaulting you and disrupting you and dividing you, um, and the fact that technology itself has changed the way our brains are working, and we are less nuanced. We are less able to disagree calmly. We have less fewer filters. And so all of these things bode very poorly from us coming back to that probably middle level of threat where we are with fewer tools to fix it. Well, on that cheery note. Yeah, um, I'm, and, I'm excited. Uh, no, you I'm, should yeah. never be Let's, in an issue that you can't see the solution, right? That's why we do blueprints. That's why you put fixes out. It's very hard to push on something when you actually don't see the positive path forward. On the debt, we know how to fix it. Well, you on know, the when, polarization, when it's you, harder. When you launch that project, that, uh, you know, my thought was fixing the debt is hard enough. Hard enough. Right. <laughs> you should have just, <laughs> just, just stayed there. Because, but like you said, you can sort of quantify that. Uh, you've leapt into a, a subject that is um, you know, difficult to even quantify. Yeah. Let's talk about something yeah. non-controversial like immigration. <laughs> um, uh, and thank you, Maya, for making immigration sound Seems less easy. controversial. Yeah. So, um, and let me turn back to our, our other panelists here. Uh, Diane, you talked about uh, demographic issues and with, for the reasons you laid out, at the beginning declining fertility rates and aging population, uh, and the effects that that will have on the long-term economic uh, picture, one of the options for reform is immigration, which not too long ago was a bipartisan issue. Um, you know, I mean, there was bipartisan cooperation. Not so anymore, but what are the potentials? Uh, I'm not asking you to lay out a specific plan, but I mean, what are the potential benefits of uh, expanding immigration? Uh, well, we'd immediately get a larger workforce. Um, we could actually target immigration policy to bring in the workers that we need the most in industries where 
in occupations where we, our, our native-born population, <clears throat> is not cutting it. It's not enough. Um, and we're not even able to educate future workers fast enough from just our population. So, um, you know, the U.S. is unusual f compared to some other countries in terms of our immigration policy has always been more family-oriented um, rather than employment-oriented. And so, yes, immigration policy could be done more strategically uh, toward the goal of, you know, bringing in more capacity to the U.S. economy, for sure. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We'll hear more from our recent panel discussion at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., marking the 30th anniversary of the Concrete Coalition, after a few short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We've been listening today to excerpts from a special panel discussion held recently at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Concord Coalition. Each of the panelists uh, work for different important think tanks or organizations or governmental entities, but all used to work at some point or other in their careers with the Concord Coalition. And that includes Ben Ritz, director of the Center for Funding America's Future at the Progressive Policy Institute. Ben agrees uh, that we need more revenue generated for the federal budget and discussed some options. I would say there are two tax policies areas that we've really started to focus on more. Uh, one of them was consumption taxes. Um, I think one thing that, that uh, really kind of brought me around to the idea of a consumption tax is that it is economically efficient. It doesn't discourage work. You can design them to be progressive with different offsets. And it's generationally neutral. You can, you know, if you just raise the payroll tax or you uh, just cut benefits, that creates that tension there uh, between, you know, balancing old and young. And you do something like a consumption tax, that can be done in a, a more generationally neutral fair way. So I think that's one place we have to look. And, and by the way, this is how all of the European countries and every country with uh, a developed welfare state funds it. They have to, you have to have some kind of consumption tax. Uh, so that's one thing. And then another area where we have been looking at is inheritance taxes. There's always this equity question when you're figuring out how much you want to raise from people who are working for a living or from their investments. You say, you know, that person worked for their money, shouldn't they be able to keep it? Or they took a risk, shouldn't they get the benefit of their investment? And one of the things about inheritances is it's generally money that the individual hasn't worked for, and as a result, you can tax it. And uh, you're not really discouraging anything, you know. If you raise the estate tax rate or the inheritance tax rate, you're not going to disincentivize deaths. Uh, you might economically, but people are going to do it anyway. It's just that's not a thing tax <laughs> policy can set. Um, so it's also extremely progressive because, you know, lower middle income people don't leave a whole lot to their heirs. And you have these sources of intergenerational wealth transfers that are a big driver of inequality. So. I think that looking at those kind of revenue sources would be a, a step in the right direction. Maya, I think one, one subject that we haven't really touched on is probably the biggest programmatic issue in the budget is health care. It's a huge part of the federal budget. It's growing fast because not just the aging of the population, but because health care tends to rise faster than, uh, than costs in general. And I know that you have a project at uh, CRFB working on that. You're Director of that is here in our audience today, <laughs> another former Concord Coalition. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so I just wanted to get your perspective on the healthcare challenge and some incremental things that we might be able to do in that realm. 
Uh, great. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about our health care program. So it is the most important policy area to be working on and by far the trickiest. I remember when I was in graduate school knowing that I was going to go and work on fiscal policy and I was going to work on the budget deficit and suddenly we balanced the budget. And so I was like, oh, here I am for two years and there's not a problem. Oh, wait, there is problems, the long-term issues. But I quickly gravitated to writing my master's thesis on how to fix Social Security because it was so damn easy. And that is why Josh is fixing health care uh, for us because it is really, really tricky. Just back to what you guys were talking about for one second, though. I do think the issue of things that are popular and how you get them, people to accept them is, again, if we have a world where there's no trade-offs, of course I don't want to raise the retirement age. <laughs> and guess what? Student debt forgiveness, that's a really great idea. But if it doesn't mean that you actually have to figure out where are you getting that $600 billion, where are you paying for it, and what are the trade-offs, what are the other things you could have done with it, then you don't make the real decision. So I think that's um, the most important way to think about um, how, how to force people not just saying, I like things that are free and I don't like things that I pay for, but instead thinking about um, how to prioritize them. Okay, so healthcare, I think, I'm going to take the big picture for one second because um, I think healthcare is the most tricky because you have so many industries who are completely tied up in their well-being, their profit comes from an inefficient system. And this goes across the board in pharmaceuticals, in hospitals, in doctors, in insurers. There are problems there everywhere. And I don't know how, back to my dysfunctional issue, how in a, such a dysfunctional political moment where these are very rich interests that give a lot of money, you can disrupt the system, which is what has to happen. So on the big scale, I think that technology offers huge possible shifts, but I don't think it will go in the right direction on its own. So I think we have to figure out how to direct, and this is true in so many areas of technology, but how to direct the benefits of this to be used in a way that can make all of the benefits both more widespreadly and available and cheaper. There's a great opportunity to use technology <laughs> to bring costs down and disrupt some of these industries that have had that have such a hold on that. Within the, this particular system, there are lots of incremental changes. It's still so inefficient. There are many, many incremental changes we can uh, have. It was great to see the progress that we made on pharmaceutical drugs in the, in the IRA bill, and we can do more. There is more to be done there, and we can make a lot more in how the pricing and the reimbursements and the transparency of costs all work. So um, it's the biggest space where we can make improvements. We could basically fix the fiscal picture there, but the special interests against are very alarmingly powerful. And just one more thing on that note, because I'm very obsessed with this. Um, it is time for the AARP, speaking of special interest groups, to stop standing in the way of progress for its, its very constituents. It is it is stunning to me that the biggest advocacy group in the country is able to get away with taking positions that are at odds with the people it represents in terms of doing something to fix Social Security and Medicare. There's so many different choices. I have no, there's no right answer. We can do a lot of different things, but doing nothing is damaging for the current retirees who are going to be affected when these programs go insolvent and future people who are going to be members of the AARP, if nothing for, nothing other than for all the benefits that they give. Um, but I think there needs to be some pushback on that advocacy group more than anything in terms of standing up and needing to, for a, a nonprofit organization needs to be actually representing the people that it purports to represent instead of standing in the way of changes that would help them. You know, I think one of the, uh, one of the big 
differences between now and, and 30 years ago uh, that we've, we've talked about a little bit today, but really it's the changing nature of uh, interest on the debt. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, because that was a big deal, you know, because interest on the debt was going to drive us, you know, into bankruptcy or whatever. And you could see that, but, but then we hit this period of very low inflation, very low interest rates, money was dirt cheap or costing virtually nothing. The government could borrow seemingly no end at no cost. And, and so, you know, we've been warning about this uh, metastasizing interest on the debt, and, and yet it wasn't happening. Well, <laughs> about yeah. the only good thing about uh, the spike in inflation that we've had recently and the Fed's efforts to have to, you know, knock that down, is I do think it perhaps has been the end of the free lunch, or at least the perception that there's a free lunch. So people see that there are consequences. Sometimes it's easier in the environmental realm to show consequences. It's a little bit harder in the fiscal. But when people see you know, the consequences now of, of rising interest rates and, and inflation again, I do think there's an opportunity. This is a, a, an odd way to be optimistic. But I mean, I do think that there's an opportunity to get back into a more realistic discussion about, about trade-offs. Diane, what's your reason to be optimistic about the future? Because I think that a lot of the political dysfunction on the Hill um, is eventually going to age out and that um, younger people are more engaged in these issues. Um, uh, you know, younger people made a difference in this last um, congressional race, right? For what, the reason for the surprise, women are going to be very uh, much more vocal in the political stage. Um, hopefully we get more young people and more women becoming members of Congress and leaders in the administration. Ben? I think there is an argument that the fever has, has broken. I mean, the, the amount of bipartisan legislation we got done in the last Congress, a lot of it did uh, add to the debt. Um, but I think that I think that they were things that if we had to add to the debt, they were mostly the kinds of things that we think are better to do. The Inflation Reduction Act started as a much bigger, much more budget-busting bill, and it ended up being the first major piece of deficit reduction uh, that we've had since the Obama era. And then I think even on the polarization stuff, we really saw, uh, I think we really may, I mean, you know, we've been here before, but... Uh, we really may have turned a corner on some of the polarization stuff. We saw that, uh, you know, people who said that the 2020 election was stolen lost every statewide race in every battleground state, every single one of them. But then meanwhile, we also saw some, uh, some more left-wing candidates uh, lose races. Like, I mean, Ron Johnson, if he can get reelected saying that we're going to let Social Security expire in a year, then, you know, maybe somebody who is running on actual reforms you know, has a chance too. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think I, I think that it's just kind of the the beginning of seeing signs of hope. But I do think that there are some there. Maya, um, I'll turn to you yeah. for a, a voice of optimism. Yes, I'm not convinced. I think we are very able to work bipartisanly when we are adding to the debt. We have seen many, many examples of that. And then it's like, good for us. We are doing a great job. That was just $1 trillion that we added to the tab. But um, I do then I think about people like Romney and Manchin. And I actually think there are, there are enough people out there who believe, or a group that we have been working with in the House, 30 and 30, that's run by Scott Peters and Jody Arrington, and 
a number of members who are not all moderates. They are really quite across the spectrum who are trying to bring the, this issue to front and center and trying to come up with some agreements on what we could do to take steps in the right direction. To go back to Warren Rudman, the original co-chair, he was in the Korean War, and one of his favorite quotes was, there are no atheists in, fox, in foxholes. <laughs> and that's what is actually happening on the climate side, that you're actually, it's, it's happening. And so all of a sudden people are saying, okay, let's, let's figure this out. And oddly, the, the rising tide of, of Denton is the opportunity. And that will be in the foxhole, and it was where we were back in 1992. We can actually start getting to a solution. And then you tie that together with the fever potentially breaking. I am optimistic. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Um, we've been hearing excerpts from a recent panel discussion at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., marking the 30th anniversary of the Concord Coalition. If you missed any of today's program, look for video from the entire event posted online at ConcordCoalition.org. That's all the time we have for this week. Join us again next week for another edition of Facing the Future. Thank you.